and welcome to this episode of G220 Radio. My name is Mike, and thank you for joining me. As you can tell on YouTube, and as you will find out shortly on the podcast, Ricky is not with me. He has taken some time with his family, like I did last week. And so we're just, every other week, you're going to get one of us. And hopefully next week, at a roundtable, we'll both be here. And so I'm here, and kind of as is my custom usually when I'm by myself, and kind of thinking about things, is we're going to go back into church history, and we are going to go all the way back to the church fathers. So I've already done a couple of these shows, some of these episodes. We did Polycart and Aeneas. Um, we've done, I think we've done Ignatius and we've also done Gregory of Nazianzus. And so this week we are going to look and turn our attention to a, another um, Cappadocian father. So Gregory of Nazianzus was the first one. We're going to go um, Basil the Great. And in this episode, number 572, called Basil the Great Community within God, we'll look at and think about kind of how he thought about the Trinity. So as like being part of the Cappadocian father, he is born in around 330 AD. So to kind of think of our church history, place things together, the Council of Nicaea is 325. And that's the first ecumenical council. Called by Constantine, that's where we get the Nicene Creed, or most of it. It will be adapted in the Council of Constantinople in 381, which is two years after he died, Basil died. And so he's born five years after the Council of Nicaea. He dies just per, just a couple years before the Council of Constantinople. And he's in this area of Pontus, Caesar, kind of, kind of think modern day Turkey. And as long as also with Gregory of Nazianzus, which we did talk about in episode 443, his brother Gregory of Nyssa is also the third one. So there's two Gregories and Basil. And they fight for the Trinity. They are, in one sense, Eastern fathers, being from kind of Turkey. They're would have been probably Greek speaking. Um, it's not as big of a deal, but there is a starting divide between the Greek Eastern church and the Western Latin church. Um, and so, but you still have a lot of debates, especially the Aryan debate. I mean, this is what's going on. The council of Nicaea in one sense, while expressed ortho orthodoxy, did not bring about a unity within it. Arius and his teachings are still around. They're in some sense growing after this time. So the issue is not at all put to bed. And we see this not only with Athanasius, who is at the council with his bishop 
Alexandria, Alexander of Alexandria. And then later his kind of fight with it, but also the Cappadocian fathers. And when we think about Basil, he is educated in Caesarea. Then he goes to Constantinople. And 351, he is in Athens. And so he is receiving a really good Greek education. Um, Bloom, Jackson Bloomfield, I think is his name, says, and this is in Peter Scoff's edited edition on Church of the Ants, the Nicene Church Fathers. He says of Basil that he studied Greek literature, rhetoric, and philosophy under the most famous teachers. He has been brought into contact with every class of mind. His training has been no narrow hothouse forcing the theological opinions and ecclesiastical sediment. The world in which he is to renounce, to confront, to influence is not a world unknown to him. And so he knows these areas that he's fighting. When we start thinking about the Trinity, we start really getting into some pieces that are not as easy to understand. And we, we have to consider that what we know about the Trinity today is built upon people like Basil, who are constantly, who in their lives were constantly battling for the truth. After he leaves Athens, he becomes um, an ascetic, ascetic, sorry, and kind of monastic. He, he leaves for the desert. And again, during this time, there is this movement of what is what we would now call the Desert Fathers. And the Desert, desert Fathers would go out to the desert, hence the name, and would subject themselves to asceticism, not eating, not drinking, not interacting with anyone. Some sat on pillars, some sat on really tall pillars. And all of this in order to kind of beat back the sin within us, to try to contain the sinful nature within us. And I think we need to kind of think about this because it's, it sounds nice. Oh, I can go away with the Bible and I can study. But there are things that come up that we need to consider about such an idea. A lot of times they would do these by themselves, which means they really can't obey all the commands of the New Testament to, you know, pray for one another, to kind of give and help one another, to spur each other on to good works. There are different New Testament commands in which they could not obey. Now, they would come back to town from time to time. They're, they do have to eat. They do all these things. But there's a point in which they were seeking kind of a godliness 
and yet being somewhat disobedient to the word and trying to beat their bodies down. And in thinking about this, we should consider that during this time, Platonism is back on the rise. Neoplatonism is a thought. And, and what why this plays a matter is the Gnostics held a similar or carried on kind of this view of Plato. Well, Plato, one of many things that Plato argued was that the spiritual world was more real than the physical world. The Gnostics would take this farther by saying the physical world or the spiritual world is good and the physical world is evil. And I think in some points as Christians, we can identify something like that. But what runs into it and what we need to consider is that God made the physical things and they were very good. And while sin corrupts, that doesn't mean that what God created is automatically bad. In fact, in the resurrection, we get new bodies, new physical bodies. I think C.S. Lewis, even for some of his own faults, um, talks about this. I think it's in The Great Divorce. I should have looked this up. And the description of heaven, and it's like the blades kind of, the blades of grass kind of cutting the person's foot because they're more real than he is kind of in his physical. And to think about that God is the ultimate real being and he is spiritual. So there have been good applications and thinking about platonic thought, but in the monastic and the kind of desert father, the asceticism that comes at it is kind of a over application of some of these things. And yet we need to acknowledge though God created all things good that we live in sinful by bodies, but it's, it's who we are that is or what God created us as good, though corrupted by sin, doesn't make it bad. And it's a good one comment on for it. It is the great divorce that that imagery comes from, um, from C.S. Lewis. I, I should read it again. I remember it being very good and I probably should go back and like it, other books, read it again. And so, and that's kind of, even though I've sidetracked a little bit to talk about asceticism, this is what some things we can do with church history is to examine one's life, examine one's thought and examine it towards what scripture is. And to realize that the, the, the monastic movement, the asceticism comes out of a, a mass conversion under Constantine when Christianity becomes legal. And then it's you're favored if you are kind of a Christian and you get what we would call today a cultural Christianity. People who are saying they are Christians and they 
are not. They're just kind of going through the motions. And this was one way to show that you were more spiritual, that you cared more. Again, we should recognize that in the airs that they are. They are products of their time. Um, but we can we can see and we can learn just as we hope when church when church history is being written about our time that the Christians can see what we did wrong th- and be able to change and improve and be more godly, more closer to the truth. That was that was a long excursus on asceticism, but that's what Basil finds himself. He is one who goes into that and he kind of does this monastics thing until about 364 when he is called back. He goes to Caesarea, becomes a deacon, and then in 370, he'll become bishop of Caesarea after a Eusebius. And from kind of him coming back and even a little bit before he's coming back, he is engaging with those who deny the Trinity. And just like Gregory of Nazianzus, when we talked about him several years ago, he is fighting against two different heresies at the same time. So the big heresy, the heresy de jure, as you could you could say, is Arianism. Arianism is the belief that there was a time when Christ was not, that he though has a similar substance of the father, he, like us, was created. He's a created being. Modern day, this heresy is in Jehovah Witnesses. And so Jehovah Witnesses are just repeddling the Arian heresy. And it comes from a guy named Arius who taught these things in Alexandria in Egypt. That's why Alex of Alexandria... um, forces him out of his church and causes a big schism or a problem in which Constantine then calls the Council of Nicaea. So you have that issue and very prominent and very high on the life. And even in Nicaea, the there is a divide between should we use homoousius or homoousius? Those are the Greek words of of the same substance and of a similar substance. And not to, we did a show on Nicaea, but to understand that the debate on those terms really kind of came down to which side were you on the Greek side or the Latin side? And because the, the Latin Christians, the Christians in the West are dealing with what we would call modalism or Sabellianism. It is that God manifests himself in one of the three titles, either the Father, the Son, or the Spirit. And so you you have that heresy going on. Now, the Cappadocian Fathers and Basil in particular are not really addressing that. That's not an issue in the Eastern Church. But the other issue that Basil is involved with and looking at is called the Nudamachi 
heresy. So then the, the Nudo Mackey heresy is a heresy that denies the deity of the spirit. They, and in some of the literature, they're probably not wide, but some would agree with that. Maybe the son is God, but not the spirit. They're not as popular and it's heresy. They are in that area. That's probably why Basil is, and the Cappadocian fathers are fighting it. But in the end, they are there. And so he is writing. He is ministering and, and defending the faith against these kind of two heresies. The, the bringing down of both the son and the bringing down of the spirit. That they are not God incarnate. They're not God incarnate and God the spirit. And they're not Trinitarian. Basil will fight until he dies in 379. Um, he dies because of poor health. Um, commentators, patristarians seem to indicate this is probably because of his time being in the desert and the asceticism that he put himself through to um, cleanse sins, to become um, not as sinful as they would as they were seeking it. And so before the issue comes up again in three, 381 in the first council of Constantinople, um, Basil dies and is, um, and his legacy lives on and kind of how he fights. He's writes a lot. Um, you can get some of his sermons, but his most popular treatise is on the Holy Spirit. And he wrote that kind of shortly after he comes to Caesarea in the 360s, 370s. And he writes this book, I mean, obviously, to not only defend, in one sense, the Holy Spirit's deity, but also he defends kind of the Trinity as a whole. And to kind of think through some of what he has written, he, um, this, this work is important and kind of the main reason or kind of with the title of the show is because he really pulls out and thinks about the the communion or the that the godhead has with each others there is a difference in which how he develops the trinity as god as triune which is different than gregory of nazianzen or Athanasius and kind of, or even Augustine a little bit later and kind of the development of the Trinitarian thought. Now he adds important elements, but it's not his kind of construction 
or how he thinks about it isn't one that is later developed kind of within the mainstream thought and Trinitarian thought. Um, we did talk about this in a future in an episode between Basil and Calvin as I as I looked at those. And so he starts off here in the Holy Spirit on the Holy Spirit, which you can get a copy today out of the Patristic series. Um, it was one that I had professors recognize and read. It's a, it has a purple cover um, with it. There's a lot of them, but it's, um, trying to think through um yeah it's a at, i remember it being a purple cover thoughts i'm sorry and it has a ghost on it but where he kind of lays this out and so he kind of starts off in the first few chapters laying the, this foundational work about the understanding of it. And and like in chapter one, he starts to think about, you know, just theological words and their importance with it. And the required study for of these words for the goal of perfect wisdom. I think oftentimes, and maybe not within Reformed Christianity, though I think it does happen, terms are used technically. We can think of justification. And there is a, a formal theological definition for justification that is god declares sinners righteous by the blood of christ that we we should be condemned for our sins but god counts us righteous because of the sacrifice of his son and so you have that use of justification and that is laid out in in Romans. But when you get to James, James uses the word justification, but he's not talking about a legal declaration by God when he acquits sinners. But this kind of proving yourself, showing yourself. And that's how we understand those two passages, that they're not talking about different things because in james it's talking about that this if you were to read justification wrongly that you're justified by your works that's how the roman catholics interpret that and so to think about it these words and so we see here in basil's work that hey words are important we need to rightly define them and he'll continue to kind of work through in chapters two 
and chapter three about the words and logic and like even examining you know, the heretical words. How are they using it? And in, in chapter four, he then talks about that whose scriptures don't observe the use of like certain words and especially words that the the pagans or how these people were using in the pagan ideas that are imposed and because this is really comes down to the idea is that from whom refers to God as the father and through whom is God, the son a designated assistant or an, an instrument and in whom get all these words is the spirit and declares the time and place. And that these words are used and indicate. And as he works through then the rest of his book, he really drives in kind of looking through these words and understanding them. And he kind of systematizes even those ideas. <clears throat> and that those words form whom, through him, and in whom is actually used on all. So chapter five, he starts displaying all of these misnomers about through whom and in whom. And showing that that language is used for all of them. And that, so he's thinking, as he's thinking through this, theologically, looking at these languages, that these heretics who are trying to designate certain words to certain people of the Trinity, here, Basil is using these words to show that from Hume is not just used of the father, but also of the son of Christ. And even from whom is used of the spirit. And so if they're going to use these words and they're going to think about it this way, there's one sense in which it would be for them to become, as we mentioned earlier, that they would be um, a sibelianist or um, modalist. But what Basil is showing is that the Bible uses the same language for each, each person of the Trinity. And then systematically kind of through the rest of this book explains not just the spirit, which is kind of the goal, 
But again, how the spirit and the son are divined. In chapter six, he replies to goes that the father's the son is not with the father, but after the fa father, and whom there is equality and glory and honor. So they're saying, again, this is kind of the this is the Arian heresy. They, the son is not the same as the father, but is equal in glory and honor. But again, he shows that Christ is to be honored as if he's God. And that, you know, God, that Christ taking a position of equality at God's right hands would indicate that he himself is one like God. Now we've, we've mentioned these in other shows and kind of this treatise can continues on. He talks about how um, he uses illustrations and I didn't quite get him. I thought I would remember him not putting my notes and I, I don't, but just different illustrations to show the Trinitarian arc and that again, in all of this bringing together that they are communion together, that they're, they're, they're doing these works kind of in one sense in inseparable operations They're doing all these works combined and they are, they are one and they have a, a communion with themselves. And this becomes an important development that we then see in the Nicene Creed when they add the little information about the spirit and how the spirit is from their father and proceeds from the son and is to be gloried, to be worshiped along with the father and the son. And so Basil helps and, and develops in that way. And that's why we need to know him and to study him. And to, to think about what he what he has done, because he does impact church history. There is probably there's a lot more um could say. I wasn't as kind of prepared for this show, so we're gonna we're gonna end it here shortly. Um, but this is why we study church history. We think about these persons. We place them in their context. We understand that his understanding of the Trinity is not the same as ours. In some sense, he's thinking about it for the first time. And we've had others like Calvin and Augustine and John Owen and Sinclair Ferguson all help us to think about these things, think about the Trinity more clearly. But we also 
should see that what he did was hard work and that God has equipped him in ways to think about philosophy and Platonism in ways that he can then uphold orthodoxy, that his training and God used his training to defend the truth. Because you do have Julian the Apostate after Constantine. And again, the rise of Arianism continues to grow after the Council of Nicaea. It'll, it will be eventually removed. It will eventually be defeated by the truth. But during Basil's time, it's growing in popularity. It's seeming to overpower the truth. And that's why Athanasius often has this kind of tone like Athanasius contra monda or against the world seem to be the only one standing for truth or at least the most, the loudest, most prolific of the writers. And so I think there's another thing we take about, about this is that the truth matters and the truth will win at the end of the day. And it's a study of church history that we can see how God orchestrates how truth will win. We may not see it in our own day, but that can give us trust and that God will protect the truth even in our days, even when we see the craziness all around us. And so that has been a very short, uh, not very short, a short episode of G20 Radio. Thank you for joining us. Next week is scheduled for a roundtable discussion about denominations. You should probably join and listen to that. There are lots of things that can be said about it. You have people who say denominations are wrong. You shouldn't have denominations. Fortunately, we can't go back to the early church age and have one Catholic, apostolic and Catholic church. But you have others that say that kind of denominations are results of the new effects of the fall. Put it that way, that because of how sin has tainted our ability to reason and to know and to think, that denominations are an inevitable outcome of such ideas and that though we should not enjoy them and the separation of them or the creation of them, but that they're kind of the outflow of it. It should be a good discussion. I'm looking forward to it. I don't know exactly all that we're going to be talking about. This is Ricky's um, been working on that. So hopefully Lord willing, we We'll be discussing that. If not, we'll have another topic for you to, to think about. For Ricky, my name is Mike. Thank you for joining us on episode number 572, Basil the Great. And we'll see you next week. God bless.